I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is the Al and Lingy Show. Brilliant tap work, Gresham. Curling, curling. Magnificent all round. Oh, this is just a leap by Paddy Ryder. Stokes down low. Corey to Ling. And then Ling goes bang. And the captain, as he did last week from about there, kicks the goal. Brisbane produces a drought-breaking win in Sydney. And the Lions now the clear number two seed. Where do the Dockers fit? Finals hope to top four prospect, dare we say contender, Frio conquers Fortress Geelong, opening up the possibilities. The Dogs and Giants respond and they turn the corner. And kicking yips cost the Saints in Kansas. Debate rages over the selling of home games into interstate markets. Hello and welcome to the Al and Lingy show. The Eagles sink further, the pies continue to emerge and the Suns. Groundhog season strikes again. I'm Alistair Nicholson. Hello to you, Cameron Ling. Hello, Al. It's great to be here again. I've only just made it. I hope my voice holds up, Al. It's been a rough 48 hours, I must say, in the Ling household. Yes, this is the height of stoicism from you, Lingy. This is the kind of leadership that made you Geelong's last premiership captain. So you've had COVID, you've been absolutely floored by it, yet you still front up for this podcast. Massive wraps to you. Just for you, always for you, Al. When you say be here, I am here. I'm locked away underneath in isolation. Yeah, I've managed to dodge it, use a few of those evasive skills I learned while I was playing <laughs> to manage to stay away for two and a bit years, but it got me. And it, um, I'll tell you what, phew, it certainly got me. It's been, um, yeah, there was 24 hours there where it absolutely smashed me. Um, but I'm on the mend, Al. The voice is just on the mend. So please be patient with me. I've been able to watch pretty much every game of footy, every moment of footy, every moment of the NBA playoffs, every Disney kids movie under the sun. I've been watching it all. Um, so I'm happy to talk about it all. I just hope the voice holds up. I promise I'll try. So in your personal experience, what is more fatiguing? Is it getting COVID and the effects of that or chasing Shane Crawford around all day at the MCG? <laughs> well, I do remember a day when Crawford torched me that badly when I was a youngin. And the runner came out to me at about the 20-minute mark of the first quarter and said, Lingy, you're off. And I was so relieved. So I didn't have to stick with him for the whole game. <laughs> so I'll say at the moment that COVID's got me. But um, I'll tell you what, the way Croft smashed me that day, I reckon that was a fair effort as well. There's a lot to talk about again, mate. So I'm interested to get your thoughts on, obviously, the St Kilda scenario has really blown up, whether they should be selling those games to the Cairns. They've lost two in a row there. In really narrow circumstances, Riley Thilthorpe last year kicked one over his head to win the game when St Kilda had led all day and then inaccuracy cost the Saints again and already suggestions that it might cost them more than just the four points. It might cost them a really good launching position to maybe challenge for top for that type of thing. But plenty of performances to look at across the weekend. What did you love most? What caught your eye? Well, I'm going to go groundbreaking early here, Al. I'm going to talk about Max Gorn. Now, I know that's not big news and huge or anything like that, but I just got to get a 
give a bit more love to the big man. I know some of the older generation, my dad's generation, the 70s and 80s generation, love to go on and on, and quite rightly, about Polly Farmer and Big Nick and Simon Madden and Len Thompson and Gary Dempsey and all these incredible ruckmen. But it's almost like we just reel it off and go, oh, yeah, there's Max Gorn, and then we move on to who the next best ruckman in the competition is. Let's just stop and appreciate for a second just how good Max Gorn is. In an era where supposedly Ruckman were starting to drift out of the game and could their influence be as big, his last few years have been enormous. He led his team to a premiership last year. And his performance this week, how's this for a Ruckman? 29 disposals, two goals, six marks, nine clearances and 35 hitouts. The man is a marvel and deserves to be spoken about alongside some of those greatest Ruckman of all time. He's still got a few years to come and maybe a couple more premierships to come and a couple of huge performances in finals. And he may well be very well be spoken about amongst the elite of the elite, those team of the century type Ruckman like Polly and Big Nick by the end of his career. He is a marvel. Yeah, he's been brilliant. And he does it week after week after week, doesn't he? I have to put my hand up and say, when he was announced as the captain of the Melbourne Football Club, I had my reservations about that appointment. I thought he's, he's too much of a lad. He's too much of a bloke's bloke. He's, he's a great guy to be around and have some fun with. But is he leadership material? But I've got to say I was completely wrong. To me, that's a, a dead argument now, Lingy, because he has been superb in every facet. The way he has led that team out on the ground, he's performed, but he's also helped others develop within the group. He's helped set the standards as well. I think he still brought the fun behind the scenes. That's all part of being a good leader, isn't it? Enjoying the good moments, working hard when you need to. If you talk to anyone in the Melbourne team, they speak so positively about him as a leader. That, that's a key aspect to who he is these days. It is, Al. You're spot on. That, that's how you get that bond and relationship with the players and you combine it with the way he stands up in a game well, any of that fun and, you know, silliness and, and, and laughter and maybe having, you know, socialising all of that, well, you, you take that as a positive thing as opposed to somebody who does all that and then does nothing on the field and very quickly they get seen through. Well, Max Gorn's not like that. And when you started saying the criteria of maybe questionable whether he was a captain because he, you know, was one of the boys a bit and liked a good time a little bit too much... I started wondering how on earth I got the job as captain of the Cats Al. <laughs> I, I didn't mind you were the a little great bit of test case. Well. <laughs> no, I love that, Lingy. Um, I got a bit of a quirky one today. So I went Jack Ginnivan last week. And again, Collingwood fans are going to enjoy this, I think, because a player who week after week just catches my eyes, an absolute workhorse for Collingwood is Brody Majek. Yeah. Today he kicked four goals again. He's now done that 11 times in his career. He did it last week against Essendon on Anzac Day as well. He hasn't yet kicked that bag of five. He's played now 85 games, but he is so reliable. He always kicks multiple goals for the Magpies. He competes like his life depends on it. He's a brilliant story going back to when he was playing for Bernie and then made the move, I think it was to Maribyrnong in Victoria, then went to Port Melbourne and became a full back and was playing on the VFL's best forwards and doing a great job on them. He was working as a forklift driver. So he's proper blue collar. And that's the way he plays footy. Absolute heart and soul. I reckon he is a terrific example to any young footballer about the way to approach the game. He's not huge in terms of height. He's very solid and strong, but... I love the way he plays, and I think Collingwood fans, every week they go to the football, would see someone who is just pouring everything he's got in him out on whatever venue he's playing on. So 
His performance to kick four again today was excellent against the Gold Coast Suns. was very eye-catching for me. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's a good one, Al, because... And now I remember the days when I was a young midfielder. And when you pick up the ball and you feel like the world is coming at you and you feel like the game is so fast and you're under the pump. And Collingwood have got some of these young midfielders at the same phase of their career. The most satisfying, the most comforting thing you can have is that key forward just constantly working to your vision as a bailout, as a hit-up lead. You know that you can trust, even if it's a rushed kick, you just think, I just want to get rid of this footy because I'm going to get smashed. And you know you bomb it down there that that bloke is going to compete and fight and do everything he can to either mark it or bring it to ground. It's got to be such a comfort to the young Magpies players to know that basically every time they look up, Brody Majek will be somewhere there. He will have worked his backside off to get there. A bombed, ugly ball where he's put in a position where it's to the defender's advantage. He's going to get a knee in the back. He'll still compete and he'll still fight and he'll actually make that midfielder look okay and look at, and that comfort and that confidence builds from there. So he's crucial to that entire building Collingwood team. It's a great pickup, Al. A few threads around Collingwood. So they're going well under Craig McRae. They're four wins now from seven games. They're in the eights. So that's probably ahead of where they would have been expected to be. Obviously didn't have Brody Grundy and Nathan Kruger wasn't available as well. So Darcy Cameron's got a go in ruck and they bring in a first gamer in Aiden Begg. What does that say to you about where Mason Cox now stands in the pecking order? Has he been sent back with a view to giving him another crack down the track, perhaps once he's learned to compete in a more physical manner? Or is this a clear sign to you that it's the end of the road for Mason Cox? Well, Al, can I clarify one thing? Are you asking me what I think Craig McRae's thinking? Or are you asking me for my opinion on Mason Cox? Well, you can give me, give me your opinion. I like your opinion first, Lingy, but I wonder what, whether McRae is sending him back just... The opportunity was there when Kruger and Grundy went down to, to bring him straight back in, but he didn't elect to do that. And to, to me, that told me that there's a message being sent here. There's work to be done to earn your spot again. But what do you think? Well, my opinion hasn't changed in the last two years. I think 2019 was bought by an incredible 2018 preliminary final performance. You get some, you get some tickets in the bank, no question whatsoever. Even though he didn't do much in 2019, well, so be it. He delivered massive in that prelim. I haven't, I've said all along, he shouldn't have been in the team in 2020 and 2021. Unless he marks, unless he's totally on and just clunks a couple, he doesn't bring anything else to the table. He can't follow up. He doesn't present strongly enough on a lead often enough, consistently enough. And unfortunately, he doesn't provide any other real flexibility because he doesn't give a lot when he goes into the ruck either. It's not like he can go in there and have a massive influence for 15 or 20 minutes in the ruck. He doesn't do much. So, how are you asking for my opinion? I wouldn't have had him in the team last year. So, I certainly wouldn't have had him in the team to start this year. And I certainly wouldn't bring him back into the team. But what Craig McRae's thinking, I think it's starting to shift in line a little bit more with my opinion. I think he knows that there has to be a way forward for Collingwood to find a functional second tall and in the meantime, a, a fill-in ruckman for Brody Grundy that doesn't involve Mason Cox. So he's going to search some of those other options and other younger players before he goes back there. Now, it means he might still have to go back there at some stage, just out of sheer necessity, but I don't think he wants to anymore. 
Let's stay with that game at the MCG because alarm bells for me this week, Lingy, and it's been alarm bells for quite some time, really, to be honest. It's the Gold Coast Suns, as much as they, again, were largely competitive in that match against Collingwood. Collingwood's a developing team, an emerging team, and the Gold Coast Suns came into this competition in 2011, still haven't made the finals, and they're not winning these types of games in Melbourne where there's an opportunity to make a statement. They've won only two games of seven this season. You have to go back to 2015, the last time they had a start to the season through seven rounds when they only won two games. So this is a team that just does not seem to be developing a winning mentality as much as you look through the list and you see the young talent, the emerging talent, it's clearly there. But frustration must be a common theme for a Gold Coast Sun supporter given the output from week to week. It's, it's okay to be competitive, but you actually have to find a way eventually of winning to take your supporters on a ride. And it's a long time since we were talking about Guy McKenna coaching and Gary Ablett playing brilliant football there. And if not for his shoulder, they're playing finals. The reality is they have not played in the finals. And um, Caroline Wilson said not so long ago on Offsiders that it was a failed football club. It, it is hard to argue with that at the moment. No, that, I mean, that's all fair. Except when I, when I wrestle with the idea of the Suns, I look at their draw to start the season. And I have the same frustrations and the same, I go into a season with wanting to have high hopes about them. So granted, I have that. But then to start the season, they beat West Coast. That's what they should do. They lost to Melbourne. Well, they never were expected to win that one. They lose to GWS. So that's probably one. If they're going to make a jump, they need to win that one. They beat Carlton. Big tick. Now on form, they lose to the Saints, where you go, that's expected. Saints are proving themselves to be one of the best teams in it. They lose to Brisbane, clearly the second best team in the competition. And now they lose to Collingwood at the MCG. So how many of those really would you have put in the book as a win? maybe Giants. So perhaps they should be three and four as opposed to two and five. I think on expectations, it's not, it's not a horrid start to the year. Um, but maybe I'm also guilty there, Al, of my expectations just being so low and so disappointed year after year that I only set them low expectations coming into a season. Perhaps they need yeah. to be higher. But I look at that and I think, uh, they, they're doing kind of what I expected them to do. I expected them to be two, or two and five or three and four. So what's the big deal? But maybe that's half the problem. I think it's part of a, a broader thing with the club over a long period of time. As you say, there's almost a degree of apathy around what they do because they haven't achieved anything and you don't expect them to. And relevance in football is so important. The Gold Coast Suns have not had real relevance in the competition from a positive perspective for a long time. Um, I did see a quote from Mark Evans, their CEO in October, where he said that the improvement this season should take us towards a pretty special time towards the end of the season where we're contending for finals, he said. So from the base that they've laid to be two and five ahead of matches against the Sydney Swans at the SCG, then they've got Fremantle at home and the Western Bulldogs in Ballarat, that's going to take some doingly. I mean, it's yeah. very hard to see how they are literally or, or how they're potentially going to contend for finals given the start they've had and the opponents that they have ahead. No, that, that's a great... I mean, they're, if their season's not done already, which it, which it kind of is, it certainly is after those three games, if they go the way that we probably think they will. 
Um, at some point in time, the only way Gold Coast get relevance is on the field. It doesn't matter now marketing. It doesn't matter about growing the game up there. I mean, it does from a participation perspective and all of that. Get all that. Let's just park it for a second. When we're talking pure AFL team and supporters barracking for the Gold Coast Suns, relevance comes from winning and being a great team. How many years ago was it? Seven, eight years ago, the Brisbane Lions were being spoken about as having become irrelevant. No one wants to go there. The go-home five or go-home six or whatever they were called. Well, they built relevance by becoming a really great team and, and a preliminary final team and now a team that is hoping to take that one step further and make a grand final and win a premiership and, and right now the second best team in the competition. They're relevant because they play exciting, great footy. The Gold Coast Suns, there's only one way to relevance and it's time for the players to actually realise that and go, don't just go up there and think I'm going to get a four or five year nice deal and just got to get 25 touches a game, I'm going okay. It's time to start winning. And if you don't start winning, you'll just end your career as just an irrelevant nobody. And so that's, Guy McKenna that's seemed to have them. Drop. Sorry, Lingy. Guy McKenna seemed to have them on a path, and then that all came crashing down. Rodney Ede comes in, he loses his position. Dean Solomon takes over for a short period of time, and now we've got Stuart Jew. So, and none of them have been able to take the Suns to the finals, and Stuart Jew's out of contract at the end of the year. So it's an interesting position for the club to be in. Do they do they hold their course with Stuart Jew, and knowing that the players have an affection for him and everything you hear out of the Suns is that there's buy-in from the players for the coach or do they aggressively and Tony Cochran's not backward in coming forward. He's a reasonably erratic sort of a chairman. I would have said, do they very actively and aggressively go after an Alistair Clarkson? I think it's going to be a fascinating watch. That will be a fascinating watch. It doesn't guarantee success though. Just go and get Clarkson. Um, Clarkson's the best coach of the modern era. No question. But he needs time to build a culture. The reason why they've been no, they, they have no culture. They, they can argue at black and blue and say, oh, we're building a culture, all this sort of stuff. But it's just not true. It hasn't yet been established. A culture of absolute excellence. A culture that is, demands high standards but creates a really supportive and caring environment. It, it, it's not there yet. And until they get that environment and that culture... In, through the entire club and the entire football department and through that playing group and their leaders, till they get that, the success won't come. So Clarkson just doesn't walk in and click his fingers and work his tactical magic. He needs time to actually build an entire club and a functional, high-performing, high-quality culture that is caring, supportive and a, and a department of excellence. That takes time. So... Again, we're going, the Gold Coast Suns just need time. But how much time do you get? I don't know. Well, I, I throw my hands in the air sometimes and go, I really don't know what the answer is up there. Turk Mill is one who clearly is setting the standard in yep. a leadership capacity and try to set up that environment. Again, he was outstanding, wasn't he, against Collingwood? A couple of goals, 36 possessions, I think 10 clearances from him and, and someone who has devoted himself to the cause. Um, he's been very loyal to the club and he's actually emerged as one of the, the better players in the competition. So yep. there's talent there. There are, lead, there are leaders in the case of Miller there as well. Um, but as you say, the, the results need to start speaking for themselves, don't they? The Al and Lingy Show.
How was Saturday afternoon for you? What what stage of COVID throw were you in at that point, Lingy, as you combined the misery of watching Geelong being beaten by the emerging Fremantle at Cadinia Park? Just Frio's fourth win in 19 trips to the Cattery. Uh, apart from put aside my disappointment at not being able to be at the ground and, and I was going to take my kids, I was all set up for a fantastic day there. Park that for a second. Uh, my hat has to be taken off to the Fremantle Dockers. That was a quality win, a really hard fought win, a win at a place where they haven't had much success. We know that against a team that has played some really good footy this year, beat a Brisbane Lions team down there and a team that got off to a flyer, kicked the first three goals and you could be forgiven. No Sean Darcy, no Matty Taverner, still no Nat Five. Oh no, here we go again. The old, we're playing at GMHBA Stadium, the, the world's going to end type thing. Uh, they, they came back and then they played just brutal, strong footy for a huge chunk of time. And then just little moments where they broke the cats open and held on for a, a fantastic win. I, yep, got lots and lots of questions I need to ask about the cats out of that win. But I'm not going to do that first because first has to be yep. credit to Freo for an outstanding victory. I thoroughly agree with you there. So Fremantle on average have conceded 59 points a game this season. They're so hard to score against. Geelong, for them to score 10-6 at Cadinia Park is, is so far under what you would usually expect from Geelong at its home ground. That's actually the most points that Fremantle has conceded all season. And you look at the defence, what they've done to who are arguably the best two sets of key forwards in the competition in consecutive weeks. So last week it was Mackay, one goal, one. Kerno two goals, one. And this week, Hawkins, two goals, two. And Jeremy Cameron, scoreless. So that underpins Fremantle's great strength in defence. And they've added some flourish to it as well in an offensive method as well that Longmuir has brought to the table. He, that is clearly their best win under Justin Longmuir. He's in his third season as coach. But it's, it's one of their better wins in in the recent memory yeah. of the Fremantle Football Club. That's a monster, Al. It is a monster win. With the players that were missing and the start that they let Geelong have, that is just an outstanding performance. And you're right. Uh, when you think about what, what did, was it 51 minutes or 50-something minutes that Geelong uh, didn't kick a goal? It was, it was just this strangling quality defence across the whole ground. But it, it is also combined with a threatening attack. Yep. Now, I don't know they didn't score huge in this particular game, but we know they can score and throw in the, the finishes with Tabiner and then the Ruckman with Darcy in that. You know they're a potent and a threatening team that takes the game, ball forward and can score, but combined with the way they can shut a team down and stand up in the contest, oh, brilliant play. So the conversation was Fremantle should be contending for finals this year. We get through the first few rounds and it's, Wow, Fremantle's actually really good. We'll definitely play finals the way they're going. Then it sort of shifted to Fremantle could actually maybe contend for the top four. Are you prepared to take the next step in that evolution of the conversation and declare that they are capable of even more than that? It's, it's taken me a little while because I've loved the Longmuir rebuild, but I still thought the Longmuir rebuild was at hitting its peak in two years' time. I thought they'd be just scraping into the eight this year. And then I thought next year they'll be comfortably within the eight, but 
starting to experience maybe a good finals win and a bit of a failure maybe, and then the following year away they go. Maybe that's all been fast-forwarded. I'm also half stuck in the idea that it seems too early. It seems like it can't happen. Um, they're, not, they're not in the League of Melbourne, but no one is. I don't think... I honestly still don't think they're quite in the Brisbane group. But they've just knocked off Geelong at home. So they're comfortably in the Geelong group, which is the next one, which is now starting to be... Well, I would have said St Kilda until they um, did that that one-point loss. But, uh, I mean, Sydney. It, it, Sydney Swans, definitely. It's, it's a messy little group of teams there that aren't completely firing at all times. So anyone could jump out of that group. So Fremantle could launch, but uh, I, they're, not, they're not, still not in the Melbourne-Brisbane category yet, Al. But, gee, I'm impressed still, though. We'll come back to that because I was going to ask you, as I said off the top, about whether Brisbane now on the back of that four-goal win over Sydney at the SCG, first win there since 2009, whether that really does consolidate them as the number two seed. But you did mention you'd, you had some worry about Geelong and what you saw in that performance. What concerns you most? Well, just to be held like that at their home deck, that that faster ball movement, that up-tempo way they're trying to play that has worked for them at times, just saw it get shut down and saw them perhaps start doubting themselves a little bit in the way they were playing. Maybe they're trying to play surge footy at times and it's not quite there. Just a little bit can certain players sustain that way of playing because it's a high-energy, high-octane way of playing. And um, do the older players like, Dalhouse and Sean Higgins and these types of players, can they sustain that or do they get broken back the other way? A couple of questions like that. Um, I mean, Tom Stewart was superb for Geelong. I think that back line will be okay, will be fine. They, Jack Henry's a crucial part of that. They need him back in there. Um, but the back line's pretty good. You know, what they can st- sustain through the middle of the ground, still just maybe a little bit concerned um, with with the older legs that are through there. Is there one or two other younger players that are going to jump up? I think Max Holmes going down with an injury early impacted their ability to cover the ground in there. But, yeah, just a couple of little question marks to be held like that for so long in the game. Just got a few little nervous worries happening. All right, the match of the round... um... And the fixture obviously came out well in advance uh, in the rolling fixture. We had the first block of rounds out and it meant that Sydney and the Brisbane Lions was the 440 Sunday game at the SCG. So it's a little bit off Broadway, but gee, it was meaningful, the win for the Brisbane Lions. I know they've been contending for the last few years. They had a sort of a slowish start to the season, played in, in dribs and drabs a little bit, but they look like they're starting to really get going now. Uh, and to win at the SCG against a high-quality Sydney side really reinforced that to me. Lockie Neal, 37 disposals on that little ground today couldn't be stopped. Uh, I really like what Brisbane's doing. And to me, that, that did look like a side that was emerging as a clear number two. How far back they are from Melbourne, I'm not sure. Well, they're going to have to wait a while to see the likes of Fremantle in round 11 and Brisbane will have to wait until round 15 to take on Melbourne. Both of those matches are at the MCG, but they do get return dates later in the season. So 
I can't wait for those already, Lingy, because it just gives us, I think most people think Melbourne's so far ahead of everyone else, but there's that little bit of anticipation, sort of eagerness to see whether some of these teams can measure up against the Premiers. That was powerful, though, by the Lions, wasn't it? I mean, they, they, they were very good, and then Sydney came at them, and, and Buddy just wound the clock back for a little bit and got everybody a bit excited and thinking, here we go, here's a big come-from-behind victory. And then they just put the foot down again. And Rainer, Cam Rainer looks to be just jumping. He hasn't fully made the, the giant leap to um, what we all thought he might have been. I think that's still ahead of him. But he's jumping. Charlie Cameron found a little bit. Link McCarthy continues to be a threat. Joe Danaher's shoulder's obviously a bit of a concern. You've got Eric Hipwood maybe coming back in the back end of the year. But they've got, they've got forward options. And that midfield with Neil and Hugh McCluggage is just an outstanding footballer. And, Lions and Barry, like it, it's deep. Yeah, maybe they need to find one more in there. The back line's solid. They're just a powerful team that can score, can really score. And with the threats of that forward line, I'm just trying to forecast forward to a matchup against Melbourne. It means all those Melbourne defenders that position themselves so brilliantly, they all have to be accountable. There can't be as much proactive launching from the defence like Melbourne can do so well when you've got multiple dangerous options in that forward line for the line. So, yeah, I think they're a clear number two. I'm with you on that one, Al. Do you think um, they can match Melbourne in the middle of the ground, Lingy, Brisbane? That's, that's, that's my tiniest concern, Al. If you think about it, go Petrarca, Oliver, Harms, Viney. Um, who else am I missing in there? Obviously, the, the Ruckman is gone, so he's a huge plus. Though McInerney's still a very good Ruckman versus Neil... McCluggage, probably Lions, Lions, Berry, maybe in there. I mean, I, I certainly give the nod to Melbourne, but it's not, it's not too bad. Maybe they just, maybe one short. They'd love another player who could go in there and um, almost like the NBA players in the playoffs need somebody to come off the bench and just be able to play 20 amazing minutes in a big playoff game. The Lions need that other midfielder who can come in for say seven mid minutes a quarter and not let anything drop off. No let up in the intensity, no let up in the contested ball, just to give those other superstar midfielders a break and then get them back in there fresh again. Maybe that's that one piece they need to find. A couple of teams back on the winners list this week, Lingy. Um, and Port Adelaide's now made it two wins in a row. We'll come to their clash with St Kilda in a moment, but... The Western Bulldogs by 32 points over Essendon in a match that they were expected to win. And finally, it's completely unsurprising that the Giants turned it on because you have just given them week after week of bakeslingy. I reckon Leon Cameron would have had your quotes up on the change room walls to rev his players up. They were far better against the Adelaide Crows. Toby Green returning obviously helps. He kicked four goals. Canelio three, Hogan three. And Josh Kelly, 41 disposals. So... You sort of referred to them as a tease previously and, and it had a little bit of this about it again. So we've been teased again, but is it sustainable? <laughs> That's what we want to know. Al, you know what this was? And don't, don't deny this, Al. This was sitting down on the couch and you've just got a good movie on. You've got yourself a good block of chocolate and you tell yourself you're only going to have one row of the chocolate. And by the end of the movie, you've devoured the entire block of chocolate because the sugar rush... It just hits you and takes over your brain. It's amazing. You love every minute of it. The sugar rush 
from the Giants was outstanding. Toby Green's a superstar. Josh Kelly's all this. You've got Tom Green. He, he's a terrific young player. All it, it was the Giants at their finest. That's the big sugar rush. Now I need to see more than that if we're going to have any sustenance to this meal. I know I've been flogging this analogy to death about them being junk food and a big and a sugar hit with nothing behind it. Well, I need to see what's behind it now. They've got Geelong this week who are vulnerable. They they've are. Dropped, they've dropped two out of their last three. It's they're in Canberra. Playing, they're playing them in Canberra. If the Giants want to prove that they're more than junk food and they're actually a good hearty meal, they should go up and just go smack to Geelong. They should lay the smack down on the Cats, put them down, and then get on with the season. And then they should win four out of the next five. If they're a genuine team with all that talent that you just reeled off, players who can kick four goals in a game, players who can have 40 touches in a game, back it up for a month. Back it up for two months. Win six out of the next eight. And then I'll start getting excited about the Giants. But other than that, this weekend was exactly what I've said it was before. A magnificent sugar hit that has got absolutely nothing behind it just yet. Okay. He's laid it down again on the Giants. Leon Cameron, he's not... He hasn't leapt on your analogy, but it was a similar theme coming out of him in the aftermath. Great to win today. We showed what we can do, but we've got to sustain this longer term. Um, so the Western Bulldogs claim a victory. It was an important win that they get. Uh, interestingly, Norton goalless. So again, scoring is just a bit of an issue. As much as the dogs did crack the ton, the goals came from McNeil, three, Dunkley, two, McComb, two, Wallace, two, Waitman, two. They were the sort of key contributors. So... Norton's just a little bit out of sorts at the moment for the Western Bulldogs. And you'd have to think he's got a massive role to play if they're to find a way of playing a meaningful role at the back end of the season as well. As much as I think when Josh Bruce returns, that, that forward line dynamic will change. At, at least they found a way to get it in there this week, Al. 66 inside 50s. So I've been critical that they get a heap of possessions through the middle of the ground, don't go forward with it. At least this time they went forward with it scored 100 points, it's not firing. I agree with everything you're saying there. But at least they had an intent to get it to their forwards. Not well, not perfect yet, but there was an intent. I'll take that every single day of the week over the 393 disposals their opponents had yep. for a beautiful 39 entries. I mean, that's the most garbage time football you can get, isn't it? Well, and there were examples of that, just overuse of the handball on Anzac Day as well, much to the frustration of Essendon fans. Parrish gets so much of the ball, but are they really meaningful possessions sometimes? Of course, some of his possessions are, but I think you make a great point. Those numbers stood out to me as well, that they would have more uses of the ball than the Western Bulldogs, but trail the inside 50 count 66 to 39. So, and the, so, the Bulldogs are guilty of that previously yeah, as well. Yeah, nearly 400 disposals for 39 entries. Oh, I can't believe it. Do you want Zach Merritt getting nine kicks and 27 handballs? No way. Darcy Parrish, 13 kicks, 19 handballs. Okay, maybe Parrish, you go, he might end up with 50-50 because of the way he plays because he's more in and under dishing it out, everything like that. But I think, still think he's got to get better than a one-to-one ratio. So slightly ahead on the kicks. Zach Merritt, you definitely don't want him having, what's that, a one to three kick to handball ratio. 
So how much, is it a byproduct of of what you're up against? Is it a byproduct of the pressure that you put under? I think it's part that, but they invite that pressure. The way they handball the ball, they just give it backwards, invite that person to be under pressure. So he gives it backwards. He goes backwards, backwards, backwards. Oh, there's one forwards. I'll, I'll give that one. But then he goes backwards again. They've gone six handballs, gone nowhere, and invited pressure to every single one of those players whose only real option was another handball. So it's not doing anything. It's very different to take, bang, handball to release a little bit of pressure. That person draws a tackler to him, bang, handball out, and we've got it to somebody now who can kick under not much pressure at all. So there's two handballs that did something. Released the first pressure, allowed the second person to make a decision. I've got a ball user on my outside. I'll use him, bang, we're going forward. That's two handballs and we're going somewhere. Essendon, back, 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 back. Just inviting pressure, inviting pressure, inviting pressure. And you end up with 400 touches and the ball doesn't go inside 50, 40 times. I mean, I'm just thinking back to my days with Bomber Thompson, Al. If we had, and we're a high possession team, if we had 400 possessions, which we often did, and we went inside 50 under probably 58, to 60 times, Bomber would put us in the rooms and probably shoot us all. He'd hate it. He'd go, you midfield, big heads, and run around getting possessions, thinking you're flying, getting a few little possessions and going nowhere with it while our forwards are doing all this work down the ground, making 100 leads for you blokes. Pull your heads out of your you-know-whats and get it to them. Take it forward and give the guys a chance who are there to kick goals. That's what Essendon have to do. Stop fluffing around with it and giving the pressure to someone else. Take it forward. Kicking goals was very difficult at Kazali Stadium in Cairns. It's uh, part of a deal St Kilda has to take matches, home matches to North Queensland. It was the match against Adelaide last year that they lost narrowly with um, Phil Thorpe kicking that late goal. And then Robbie Gray's point was enough to separate the two teams on the weekend. Port Adelaide 5-13-43, St Kilda 4-18-42. From early in the second quarter to early in the last quarter, 10 consecutive behinds for the Saints. So in the aftermath of that, the conversations broadened out from the performance and the inaccuracy of St Kilda to whether the game should be played there in the first place and and whether St Kilda should prioritise the money. I believe it's around $600,000 a game to go up there and play or give the team the best chance of winning a home game. What's your view, Lingy? Uh, mine is win. Just absolutely full stop win. That's what the fan, the fan, you learn the money and the fans will come and the crowds will grow and the finals tickets will be sold and the merchandise will be sold and the memberships will be sold when you're playing finals and you're playing prelims and you're playing grand finals. So win is my number one thing. Now, I have a question. Did they make the decision to go there purely for the money or are they trying to grow their supporter base in another part of the country and almost have a second home ground? I don't think that's the answer. I think it's purely financial. Am I right in saying that, Al? I think it's heavily driven by the AFL. Um, The AFL wanting to take the game to different parts of the country in Queensland and North Queensland being an expansion market and then St Kilda, given the, the mass amounts of money that the AFL has given to the Saints as a financially struggling team over the year, it's, 
years, it's a pretty easy thing to tap the saints on the shoulder and say, well, it's going to be you. We need someone to go. You can't then turn around to us and put your hand out for $600,000 if you're foregoing the opportunity to earn that money from taking a game to Cairns. So I also see that side of the argument as well. And I do think the AFL has an obligation to take some matches around the country so that people get to see the game in their backyard. And I do think the conversation around whether the matches should be played in Cairns overlooks the most critical part of all of this, and that is that St Kilda was really inaccurate and should have won the game and should have beaten Adelaide last season as well. Yeah, agree with you on that point, on the inaccuracy. But Al, when you, just can I rewind back to the point about the AFL gives them heaps of money. The AFL is there to manage the competition, right? The, the clubs and the players are the ones who put on the show. They're the ones that draw the spectators through the door. They're the ones who create the TV audiences because of the games. Yes, the AFL as an organisation is there to uh, create a brand and market it and everything like that. But the players and the clubs are putting on the show. So any of this money that's coming in the door should go to football, should go to the football clubs, to the football players, to the coaches, to clubs right throughout Australia, grassroots, everything like that. It should be split up, but it, it should go to them. So the fact that St Kilda are one of those clubs and some of their incredible players over many, many years and even now playing great footy, put on a brilliant show that allows the AFL to make plenty of money, that money should go to them. But the AFL then shouldn't dictate where that team has to play their games, their home games. St Kilda should be able to say, no, just share the money, more of that money, more of that TV money, more of that spectator money, more of it to the clubs so that we're not in a position where we're constantly having to put our hand out and we'll play our home games at home and we'll attempt to win as many games as we possibly can. I think that's valid. I think that argument around the finances in the game, it's, you have by its very nature in this competition, larger and smaller clubs and for the competition to sustain the clubs, then those that make the most money are not necessarily going to keep all of it. And it gets distributed right across the competition and, that's just the way it is. So I support that. Um, but I also support matches being played around the country so I can see what the AFL is trying to do. To me, it was just a conversation that, that very quickly gained traction, I think, around where the match was played rather than really honing in on what cost St Kilda two wins, both last season and this season, and that was actually themselves and the way they played against those two sides. Two matches they should have won, but it's an no, interesting conversation. Up. I think St Kilda will definitely be considering its position and whether it wants to continue playing those matches. And they're a team on the up, so the finances are turning around at the Saints as well. There's a lot of good development happening at Moorabbin, and um, it's a team that is certainly on the rise. So with that, you would have to think the financial position is going to change. We, we look to the AFL, when I say we, looks to the NFL and America for a lot of their models. And obviously there's games in the NFL that are played over in London by teams. Now, often they are the slightly lower down teams or um, slightly less profitable teams, private ownership, everything. So I know there's lots of differences before we get a heap of feedback saying there's no similarities. But those teams that go and play in London are so highly compensated they then put themselves in a position where they make so much money from it that they're setting up their future and they don't have to 
constantly have their hand out each year to, oh, I better take this game because we need the 600 grand. They make massive dollars from that one. So unless it's entire club changing finances, I think the thing that changes everything is success, is winning. And the Saints, to their credit, are building towards some fantastic footy. So play them. If that, if that game was at Marvel against the struggling Port Adelaide, uh, are we in any doubt? St Kilda just win that, don't they? They should, but they also should have won the game in Cairns. Agreed. That's my well. point, Lingy, but I, I hear what you're saying as well. Um, financial issues, not a problem for the West Coast Eagles. On-field performance certainly is at the moment. I listened to an interview that Glenn Jakovic did on radio on Saturday night, and I have never heard anything so scathing of the way the team was performing. He's a premiership champion of, of that club, and he referred to players who'd stayed on to collect superannuation. He talked about players being lazy. He talked about it being an insipid performance against Richmond, losing by 109 points. These are some of the words coming out of a champion's mouth about his team, and there's often a reluctance to really go down that path. So. They're in terrible trouble at the moment, the West Coast Eagles. Players like Liam Ryan in the All-Australian team, four possessions against the Tigers. They look bereft, down on confidence and lacking talent, to be honest, Lingy. It's a, they're spiralling. Well, and well, I wonder well, how, how, how can they possibly turn this around? How do they, they take out? steps forward from here? Can I ask you, are they? You said they're lacking talent. Are they really? I read through that list and I say talent, talent. I, Young do you know talent. What, do you know what I think they're lacking? Intent and a real will to do the work. Um, because, yeah, you're right. There's not the young talent coming through. Granted, I agree with you there. But you read through that list of players who played in that game. There is talent galore. Shuey, Duggan, Redden, Witherden can play a bit. Tim Kelly, Shannon Hearn, Petreski, Seaton. He's done nothing since he got there. Darling, Gaff. Cripps is a premiership player. McGovern, Nelson, Kennedy, Rioli, Ryan. It's just talent, 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 talent. Well, talent only gets you so far. There's just no genuine intent to work really hard for each other. There's no genuine intent to grind through moments and big moments in games and to grind through 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes of struggles in a game. It's just... I'll try that. Oh, that didn't work. That didn't work too bad. It goes the other way. Uh, I, think, I think talent's there. I think, unfortunately, and this is even more uh, of an indictment on this group, I think they just don't want to do it. They don't want to do the hard work that is necessary. I always got told by my old coach, and I'm bringing him up again, but he said, you need to respect the game every single moment that you are a part of this game. He said, it is too good. There are too many great players. There are too many good teams. There is too much talent. There are too many incredible teams and players to have come before you to ever stop respecting this game. And for West Coast, I look at them and I think when you read out all those names and you just hear talent galore, they've stopped wanting to do the really hard work. They're just choosing one effort and that's it. And good on Glenn Jakovic for calling it out because it hasn't just been this year, really. I mean, the way that they handled the COVID years was pretty ordinary as well. They sucked more than any other teams. They 
didn't want to go into hubs. Yes, granted, they, they had to travel and stay away from home for a little bit, but then they were able to go back home. They still didn't improve. They haven't handled the last two and a half years at all well. So if you were Adam Simpson, who seems to be scratching his head, I mean, he himself would be trying everything he has in his trick book to stimulate this group that's been to the top for him before. What would be a couple of the first things you would do to try and get this team at least playing with some semblance of pride, Lingy? Well, I'd get some clips from the Collingwood game and I would show the players who did the efforts in those games, who really worked second, third, fourth efforts, sacrificial running, um, covered for a teammate, put their body on the line, the things that actually got them into a position um, to, to win a game of footy. And I'm going to guess, I'm just going to take a guess, I haven't watched it as closely as Adam Simpson would have, that those players who you find in those games are probably their lesser names. They're, they're no-name players as far as the footy landscape is concerned and those players I'd be showing to the whole group and saying I'm just going to reward this from now on names go out the door unless you are showing me these behaviors every single time you train and every single time you play you won't play in this team and if you show me these behaviors I don't care what your name is you will play and surely you get a response from even some of your very best who realise that their career's on the line. You don't have to make massive cuts straight away if that is the standard, the line that you draw and say, this is the only thing I'm going to accept. From now on, that's all you're going to be judged on. These types of acts, these types of behaviours, this time of type of work for your teammates. You do that, you play, I promise you. And you've got to obviously back up your promise to those younger players or inexperienced players who do it and just play them and you can get an effort like you did that might put yourself in a game. They're not still not going to win many games because maybe the talent drops there, but i tell you what, they won't have blowouts where they lose by 109 points and are just non-competitive. You'd have to think their fans are at the point now where that's what they want. They want to see those little glimpses into the future. They want to see little nuggets where this is going to turn around just the start of a path towards going back to where they want to be. So selection will be really interesting this week for the West Coast Eagles. We saw the tough call made by Ben Rutten to drop Dylan Shield. Ultimately, Essendon still lost to the Western Bulldogs, but it was a, it was a statement at selection. Was it, was it though? You think, I mean, I, th- I think it's always a statement well, when a high-profile recruit gets dropped that you gave up a lot I to acquire. agree with you, Al, but if you're going to do it, don't make him the medical sub. Just drop him. Straight out. Drop him and say, again, here's the screen in a meeting. Give me one-on-one. You have that sort of effort, that sort of effort, and that sort of effort. You're not playing in my team. I don't care what we play, pay you per year. I don't care what your reputation is. You play like that, you just don't play full stop. And you send him back to the VFL, and he goes back to work, or he disappears and he never plays again. Now, a player like Dylan Shield, with his character, he's a quality person, he's a hard worker, and he's got some talent. He'll sort it out. He'll go back to the VFL and he'll play three, three or four weeks of really good footy, great footy, and he'll come back better for it. But if you just kind of half drop him, because he's dropped, but he's the medical sub, have you really made a statement? Or have you just kind of said, 
hey guys, here, I'm a bit annoyed. Dylan Shields out, but we're going to put him as the sub just in case we need him. Like, either make the statement or don't make the statement. Yeah. You make a good point. So, West Coast have got Brisbane at the Gabba on Saturday night. It's sort of a condensed round. We've got actually matches, two matches on Friday night. Port Adelaide and the Western Bulldogs, Fremantle and North Melbourne. My understanding is that that was that they didn't want too many games on Mother's Day. So they've actually got a lot of games on Saturday, five games on the Saturday, running concurrently Richmond and Collingwood and Sydney and the Gold Coast. So they're both 145 games into Twilight, GWS and Geelong, and then two night matches at the same time. Essendon, Hawthorne at Marvel and Brisbane West Coast at the Gabba, then Sunday, Melbourne and St Kilda at the MCG and Carlton versus Adelaide at Marvel on Mother's Day. Lingy, what a performance from you. You didn't miss. You barely crackled. You came out of the blocks hard again. Thank Great you, opinions Al. from you. Rest you up, mate. I, you know what I love the most? I've got the excuse of ISO as to why I will end up forgetting both my mother's and Nicole's Mother's Day presents. And I'm clueless online, so I don't know how to online shop. So pretty much I'm safe. I'll ring my sister. She'll have to organise the whole thing for us. So this is perfect, Al. I'm, I'm going to make the most of this ISO time. I think it's high time that Nicole subscribed to this podcast, Lingy, just so <laughs> she knows exactly what you're up to. And in fact, anyone out there, make sure you do subscribe and review to wherever you get to your podcast from. You can download the Al and Lingy show every week. Every Monday we'll have it out. A thorough wrap for you of the round of football. Lingy, good to chat. Thanks, You got Al. through nicely, mate. Chipper as always. <laughs> chat next time. The Al and Lingy Show. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.